Romans 11, starting at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for the sake, for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh dear Lord, we ask this morning that you would make what we just read clear, clear to our minds and clear to our hearts. The very things perhaps that we have not understood that had been fuzzy in the past, would you bring a clarity this morning that brings conviction and the conviction that leads to faith, hope, and a love for you? The bottom line is this, O Lord. We want to see you more clearly. We want to know you more intimately. So do it, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Are we okay here with the mic? Can you just change off? Change? Okay. Let me try it here. Pardon me. All right, are we on? Okay, it's better. Great. Well, appearances and first impressions, they can be deceiving, can they not? Why? Because we often lack perspective. We often lack the data in any given situation. In other words, we're not God. We're not God, but as you may agree, That often doesn't stop us, does it, from making judgments or presumptions. We're all prone to make assumptions. We're all prone to jump to conclusions, to make snap judgments. We have opinions that masquerade as facts. And if you are not convinced of that, just listen to sports radio or talk radio for about five minutes. Give us a little bit of knowledge. 
<laughs> We're dangerous, are we not? But perhaps what is the most sad or saddest is when we make wrong assumptions or judgments about other people, people we know, people around us. We think we know them, and we think we have them and God all figured out. That was me when I met a beautiful woman named Cindy Mason at the copy machine in my office. The date, January 4th, 1993. Cindy and I chatted over a few Xerox copies. And let me just say this. It did not go well. I think Cindy would agree it was a train wreck of a conversation. It was, how do we say, awkward. So, after our conversation, I went back to my little cubicle, put my head in my hands, and prayed this prayer. I said, Lord Jesus, thank you. You have made it so clear. This is not the woman for me. I prayed that prayer. Thank you for making it so clear. I really didn't think I was being presumptive or arrogant at that point in time. I think Cindy would agree with me. From all appearances, Cindy and I were not a match made in heaven. But thank God for his mercy. I was dead wrong. And this coming year, Cindy and I are celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. Yes. And let me tell you this, that is God's mercy. It's also a mystery, if you know the two of us, for we are so different. You see, back when I met Cindy, I really thought I was tracking with God. I I was following him. I got you, God. I know where you're going here. I'm just acknowledging it. I got it. Thank you. Thank you. But let me just say this. If you're tracking with God, you are tracking with the God of second and third, and fourth chances. You are tracking with a God of mercy. That's something I missed 20 years ago. It's something I've missed often since then as well. And it's something that the churchgoers, particularly the Gentiles and the church in Rome, in our passage this morning, had missed as well. You see, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, we've been studying Romans 9 through 11. And you would know that the Gentiles in the church in Rome were guilty of some pretty serious presumption and arrogance. Their questions were good, but their conclusions, not so. Put this back here. How's that sound? Great. Thank you. Amen. So the Gentiles had some questions. They were good questions, but as I mentioned, their conclusions, not so. See, the Gentiles in the church in Rome, to which Paul is writing, is asking these questions by way of review. They're saying this. Hey, where are the Jews? Where are the ethnic Jews? Where are the ethnic Jewish Christians in the church? I mean, we're talking about those who had received the covenant promises of God. Those who are 
God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Where are the Jewish Christians? See, it was obvious, by and large, to them that Jews had shut the door on Jesus. They had rejected him. And God had thus opened the door to them, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to be saved. But you see, for the Gentiles in the church here in Rome, that was it. The Jews had rejected Jesus, opening the way for the Gentiles to place their saving faith in Christ. That's it, period. Case closed. End of story. If the Apostle Paul were perhaps speaking to a Gentile of this church today, at, say, Palm Vista Community Church of Rome, you may have just heard the following by a Gentile member. Listen, the Jews are out. The Gentiles are in. The Jews, yeah, they had their chance. But their loss is our gain. Hallelujah. And they have said, it appears that the Jews and Jesus, Israel and God, was not a match made in heaven after all. And if you pushed them a little farther, they might say, hey, I'm just calling it as I see it. Well, indeed they were. But as Christians, we just don't call it as we see it. We call it as God sees it and as God reveals it to be. So with that in mind, let us go to verse 25 this morning as we begin working our way through the text. You see, as Christians, to call it as God sees it, as God's revealed it to be, takes humility. It requires God's thoughts, God's ways, God's perspective, and God's word. So in order to capture God's word this morning, I'm going to break it down into three subsections. I'm going to introduce that to you so you can see the flow of the narrative this morning and where we're going. We're going to begin with mystery. Mystery. Verses 25 through 27. The mystery of God. And then after that, we're going to go to mercy. We're going to look at the mercy of God. Verses 28 through 32. And then we're going to end with doxology or praise. Verses 33 through 35. Mystery, mercy, doxology. As we go through those three subheadings, we're going to arrive at the application this morning, the payload of the message. So let's start at the beginning, verse 25, with mystery. Here we have in verse 25, the Apostle Paul warning the Gentiles of their pride and arrogance, their conclusions, saying the following, verse 25 to 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. We're going to stop there because this is a loaded statement. And if you're like me, what I just read, that begs a lot of questions, doesn't it? Let's unpack it. Firstly, the word wise in verse 25 can be understood as a code word for presumptive 
or arrogant. You see, to combat and protect them from their pride, that's the Gentiles and the church in Rome, Paul wanted to share with them a mystery. Oh, this is a very important word. Mystery. When we think of the word mystery, we often think of, well, murder mysteries, right? Sherlock Holmes. In such mysteries, all the facts are there. We just need somehow to put it together, right? Make sense of them. And usually that comes with the help, the keen observation or intellect of a detective or an investigator in the story. However, this is not the way I believe this word mystery is being used here. Mystery in the Bible, typically and technically, refers to something that is incomprehensible. Not incomprehensible, but rather that which is hidden and yet to be revealed. That which is beyond us to discover. Something we could not possibly know unless, unless God revealed it. So I have a definition here for mystery that might be helpful for us as we go forth this morning. It comes from the Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, the New Testament. I.e., it comes from a commentary with a lot of photos. That's pretty cool. That's what you got here at Paul and Vista. Your pastors are still reading picture books, okay? But I want you to know I got it from Al, okay? He was sharing it with me. Thank you, bro. It is a good, actually, commentary series. And here we have a helpful definition of mystery. It refers to events of the end times that have already been determined by God. And so, in that sense, already exist in heaven and which are finally revealed by God to his people for their encouragement and understanding. Church, I believe this is the type of mystery which Paul is referring to in verse 25. And he then states this mystery in three parts, which we're going to put on the slide for you. This mystery has three components. Number one, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. But that alone, point one, that's not a mystery. That was obvious. Those in the church in Rome, they understood this. They had observed this. Well, yes, indeed, there has been a hardening of heart when it comes to the Jews. But it doesn't end there. There's not a period after Israel. There's a comma, and there's this next phrase. Oh, yes, a hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that's a little more curious, isn't it? Apparently, this hardening of the Jews was temporary. It was temporary. That is, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This fullness or this completeness may well refer to the complete number or fixed number of Gentiles who would be saved. In other words, the large-scale rejection of the Jews of Jesus has taken place, but this will not be the case forever. Once God's purposes are fulfilled in saving the Gentiles, bringing them into Christ, the Jews' hardening of heart will be no more. Whoa. And here comes the greatest bombshell of all. Part three. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. To quote one of the great superheroes of my children's past, Bible man, this point three is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. That was actually a quote from Winston Churchill, I think, regarding Russia, but you get the point. I like the way Bible man said it better. All Israel will be saved. Whoa, 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 wait. All Israel? For real? I thought God was done with them, or at least, except for a small remnant. Now, if you were one of the original recipients of this letter, you might have said, whoa, I did not see that one coming. And maybe you did not either this morning as you sit here and see these words. But what did Paul exactly mean by the phrase, a term, all Israel? Admittedly, this has been a topic of debate among commentators, theologians, since the time these words were penned. But let me propose an answer consistent with the mystery revealed in verse 25. Firstly, what does Paul mean by Israel? It is true that the word or term Israel can refer to the church, that is, Jews and Gentiles alike, i.e., God's elect. That term sometimes is how it is used in the New Testament. But I do not think that it's how it is being used here in Romans 11. If the statement, all Israel will be saved, means that God's elect, the church, will be saved, well, that's hardly a mystery, is it? Something that has not yet been revealed. That's what we would call a truism. Well, of course, by definition, all of God's elect, his church, will be saved. We know that, don't we? But perhaps the most convincing is that the term Israel in Romans 9 and 10 is used 10 times. And each time it's used to speak of the nation of Israel. As it is, in verse 25 as well. The you in verse 25 clearly refers to Gentiles as juxtaposed with Israel, ethnic, national Israel's hardening of heart. I think Paul is using Israel in the same way in verse 26 as he's using it in 25 in the rest of Romans 9 through 11 to speak of the nation of Israel. But perhaps the greater question for most of us is this one word, all. All Israel? All will be saved? You know, such all-inclusive, universal language. It can make us feel uncomfortable, can it? Well, I think we're helped here by the fact that such a phrase in the Old Testament frequently has a collective sense. That is, it doesn't refer to every single Israelite but to a significant or representative number. I want to give you two examples from the Old Testament. We'll start with Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, verse 25. We read the following. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned Achan. We read in another verse, 
2 Samuel 16, verse 22, these words. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. You see, in these verses, it's doubtful that every single Israelite stoned Achan. Just as it is doubtful that every single Israelite saw the sexual exploits of Absalom. But what's clear is this. Many did. To quote one commentator, all Israel in each text is representative in that enough Jews were involved to give the events national significance. You see, what Paul seems to be revealing via revelation from God is not just a small remnant, but a significant, very large portion of ethnic Jews will be saved. But when is that? When? When the full number of Gentiles are saved. What's that number? When? We don't know the exact number, and we don't know exactly when. But when we see the phrase, all Israel will be saved, it appears that it refers to a point in time. We'll get to verse 31 in, in a few moments. But it refers to this time of mercy upon the Israelites of Israel as now. Now, in the last days. See, I don't think Paul is just saying that many Jews will be sw- sw- excuse me, saved through the sweep of redemptive history. Oh, many will. But there will be a time now in the last days before Christ's return when many, many will be saved. In fact, it's not that the expectation of many of the Old Testament prophets. If you read the prophets, it's an expectation of this regathering of Israel and the Jews and God's deliverance and salvation. So then we have in our text this morning a quote from an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. And this quote can be found in Romans 11, verses 26 and 27. So look there. It should be indented, most likely in your Bible. This is a quote from Isaiah. We read the following. The deliverer will come from Zion. I just want to pause there for a second because Paul most likely would have been quoting from the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in that version, we actually hear the following. The deliverer will come for the sake of Zion. For the sake of Zion. But Paul, for whatever reasons, quotes it a little differently. He says, The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Well, who is the deliverer that Isaiah is referring to? Well, we know, don't we, on this side of the cross, that deliverer is Jesus. Where will he come from? From Zion. Where is Zion? Well, according to Hebrews 12, 22, Zion is heavenly Jerusalem. So let's put it all together. What is Paul saying here? Why is he quoting this verse? He's saying Christ will come from heaven upon his return, i.e. the second coming, and banish ungodliness from Jacob, another term for Israel, according to his covenant faithfulness, and take away their sin. How? 
will he take away their sin. But the same way he has taken away your sin and my sin by placing their saving faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. The Jews will be saved in the end the very same way we are saved, by their acceptance of the gospel, by receiving forgiveness of their sins through Christ Jesus. Yes, the Jews, excuse me, Jesus. Yes, Jesus cares for the Jews. Yes, Jesus has not forgotten the Jews. But there are not two tracks of salvation, one for the Jew and another for the Gentile. No, there's not. There's only one pathway, one road to salvation, church, and it leads through the cross. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, anyone who believes, the Jew first and the Greek and Gentile, Romans 1.16. And many Jews will be saved. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises and God is merciful. And that leads to the second section of our narrative, verses 28 to 32, mercy. We discussed the mystery. Now we're going to look at God's mercy, starting at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, that is Israel, are enemies for your sake, Gentile. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. I'm not going to spend a long time on these verses, but I think the point is relatively clear. The Jews may be enemies of God, rejecting his son Jesus now, but they are beloved of God because of God's long-ago promises to the patriarchs. He is speaking of the covenant made with Abraham and his descendants. And then we read verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The privileges of Israel, the gifts mentioned back in Romans 9, verse 4 and 5, that is their adoption, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the glory are irrevocable. That is, God will not take them back. God will not reverse course. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse 29 when he says, God's gifts and God's call are under full warranty, never canceled, never rescinded. Three weeks ago, our oven in our own household nearly exploded. We had a full-on electrical storm in our oven, complete with arcing electrical currents and fire. This was bad. It was really bad. So bad that it blew a hole through the bottom of our oven. If you're freaking out right now, let me just tell you, pretty much a day in the life of the Smidgen household, okay? I can say, though, this time, it was not my fault, for which I was happy, at least momentarily, okay? It was not my fault. I'm innocent. It was an accident. Well, of course, we called the manufacturer to discuss our little problem. 
to ascertain as to the warranty on this particular oven. This beautiful oven that was now a fried oven. We were told the warranty was for seven years. All right? So we went through our files to find our receipt and the purchase date. And you might guess what we found out. The oven was exactly seven years and two weeks. The warranty had expired. The oven repair man explained that modern-day appliances, like our beautiful oven, only last about seven years. They have what is called a built-in obsolescence, kind of like a light bulb. They are made to break, made to be replaced. Friends, this is not so with God's promises and mercy. You see, the Gentiles and their arrogance and presumption had figured out that there was a built-in obsolescence regarding God's promises to Israel. And the warranty had expired. The covenant had broken down and the Gentiles had now replaced the Jews with the exception of a small remnant. But oh, they had forgotten. They had forgotten the unfathomable mercy of God. Verse 30. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience, so they, Israel, too, have now been disobedient in order that they, excuse me, that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. Wow, that was, a, that was a tongueful. In other words, God showed mercy to you, O disobedient Gentile, because Israel had rejected me, their God. But will he not likewise show mercy to the disobedient Jew? Now that he has shown it to you? Yes, he will. I love the prayer of Ray Ortland Jr., which sums up these verses, verses 30 and 31 so well. You amaze me, Lord God, when, you offer, when your offer of salvation is spurned. You do not withdraw it. You extend it more widely. And then you come back to the first offer and ensure that it is eventually taken up. Oh God, when I see you most clearly, I see mercy. When I see you most clearly, God, I see mercy. Verse 32. For God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy, mercy on all. Do you see it, church? God's unfathomable mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience. Well, this all clearly refers to the groups to which Paul is addressing. The groups being Jew and Gentile alike. Paul has consigned Jew and Gentile alike to disobedience. That is, he has, another word would be, he has shut up or imprisoned Jew and Gentile alike to disobedience. But catch this, disobedience based on their 
willful rejection of him. That he may have mercy on all. Who's the all? Jew and Gentile alike. All without distinction. Not all without exception. This is not an argument that every person will be saved. That's universalism. That is not taught. No, but all peoples, Jew and Gentile both, will be saved. I love this phrase. I believe it's in the ESV study Bible. It says this. All of salvation history is structured to feature God's great mercy from beginning to the very, very end. It's this which the Gentiles and the church in Rome couldn't see, or at least the manner or sequence by which all Israel would be saved. Oh, they understood. They understood that they were once on the outs with God. But when the Jews slammed the door shut on God, God opened the door to the Gentiles. But it's that very same door that he opened by which the Jews will one day enter as well through Christ Jesus because of his mercy. Israel is now positioned, as you learn this text, to experience God's mercy once again. Not just a few, but, quote, all Israel. And this leads to the marvelous doxology that concludes our passage. We had mystery, mercy, and starting with verse 33, we have doxology, or praise. It concludes on just our passage. It really, you could say, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And these verses must be read for what they are. Worship. Quoting from Isaiah again, we read with verse 33 to 35. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Like he, gets, he can go on and on. How unsearchable are his judgments. That means his ways. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? No one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. Oh, the very first word, oh. You catch it? There's emotion there. There's passion. This isn't a dispassionate reflection on the election of God. There's emotion here. There is passion being communicated here. It's the worship of a man who realizes that he is way over his head here. Paul is not praising God because he has it all figured out. As if the mysteries of God are all sewn up. He's praising God because God's judgments, his ways are unsearchable. Another word synonymous with that in our text is inscrutable. True, God in his mercy has chosen to reveal the mystery, the way in which all Israel will be saved. But having done that, we are still left humbled and speechless. For no one could have seen this coming in such a way apart from God revealing his wisdom and ways to us. The Gentiles, 
they had written off the Jews. The Jews had written off God. But God had not written off the Gentile nor the Jew. In his sovereign mercy, God has structured all of salvation history to feature his great mercy. From beginning to end, what is God's goal? Unmatched and unrivaled glory. The glory of God. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What is the application for us today as we speak of this unique, redemptive history? The application is, I believe, clear. It's wonder and it's worship. It's rejoicing and resting in God's promises and mercy. Resting in God's promises and mercy when we don't understand, when we don't have all the pieces of information, when appearances seem contrary to what we thought or had imagined. What is the application? Let's put it up on the slide. It's this. This is where we've been going with mystery, mercy, and doxology. We've arrived at this point. Rejoice and rest secure in the mystery of God's sovereignty. Rejoice, doxology, worship. Oh, believer, and rest secure. Yes, in the mystery, it's a mystery, but the mystery of God's sovereign mercy. So what does that mean? It means church learning to embrace mystery. Learning to rejoice in God's unsearchable ways and wisdom, knowing that he is sovereign and merciful. At the limits of our understanding, there can be awe and worship, joy and wonder. Not everything that is hidden has yet to be revealed by God. And some things Never will be. For God is omniscient, all-knowing, and we are not. But the mystery of God's plans and ways, not knowing completely, not completely understanding, need not lead us to despair. You may be hearing me speak this morning. You say, Corey, I don't know what you're saying. It's all a mystery to me. Not just what you're saying. My life is a mystery. It's not like I just don't know what will happen in the future and I'm making arrogant presumptions. I don't even get the past. I don't even know how to interpret the past. I don't even know what's happening now in my life. I do not understand. It is a mystery. I don't understand the relationships that have gone awry. I don't understand the pain, the loss, and the suffering. Well, if that's you... I get it. But more importantly, God gets it too. But please hear this. Mystery does not mean meaningless. Mystery does not mean arbitrariness. We can embrace our limitations 
and the mystery of God's wisdom and ways with hope. We can with hope. Why? Because God has demonstrated in this very passage, Romans 11, verses 25 through 36, the mystery of God, to quote one commentator, will never, ever turn out to be anything other than the mystery of the altogether good and merciful and faithful God. God has a plan. God has a game plan. And it's all structured. It's all engineered. It's all orchestrated to feature his great wisdom and sovereign mercy for his glory. I also think there's a second application here as well for us today. I believe this passage can shape our attitude and perspective, not just of Israel or the Jews, but of all those who right now, in your eye, appear to be on the out with God. Those who have apparently rejected Christ and his ways. Please hear this. We don't have any certain promise that any certain individual will be saved. But we do have the promise that God is committed to saving Jew and Gentile alike. His elect from all peoples, all tribes, and all backgrounds. So, so, let's be careful not to presume that we know or can make snap judgments about God's ways or God's intent with people. Allow time, allow time for God's sovereign mercy to be worked out in the lives of individuals. How easy it is to write off people, as Al mentioned and preached on last week, to that person who has rejected Christ or squandered God's grace It is so easy to say, you know what? They had their chance. But what do we communicate when we say that or think that? Isn't there an air of finality to it? They had their chance. Yeah, period. End of story. As if God's mercy has expired. As if somehow it is too late. Past tense. They blew it. It's over. But could, could God in his unfathomable mercy be saying, yeah, they had their chance. But you know what? I'm going to give them another one and another one and another one according to my sovereign mercy. Perhaps he's saying that to you this morning regarding a prodigal son or a wayward husband. Perhaps he's saying this to you this morning. If you've not placed your saving faith in Christ Jesus this morning, oh, there is mercy. There is mercy for you. Should you humble yourself and express your desperate need for God's mercy as found in Jesus Christ, who paid the punishment for your sin on the cross. Perhaps you're just resigned to your sin. Or maybe to use 
the words of verse 32, you are consigned to your sin and disobedience. You say, hey, it is what it is. It's too late. If that's you, or you've had those thoughts, you're having those thoughts right now, may I say, there is no built-in obsolescence regarding God's mercy for all those he has called to himself. His mercy has not expired. So if that is you, would you call out to God even today and respond to his mercy? And he will answer. He doesn't owe you anything, but he'll give you everything. He'll give you his son who died for your every sin and transgression. And in doing so, display his sovereign mercy in your life. Church, let's be a patient people. Let's be a humble people. May we not write off any person, any people, any church. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And let's be grateful they're not. (laughs) If they were, I would not be married to Cindy today. We would not have gotten married. We would both agree about that. But God is merciful. God is merciful. God's way is the way of mercy for all that has been called to him. As a church family, we've been through a lot these past three years. I can say personally, my personal family, we have been through a lot these past three years. I'm thinking of the adoption of our youngest daughter. It's been a dizzying three years, and many times God has turned our world upside down. Maybe for you, these past few years, how many years of grieving, of suffering, of loss? The church God is not done with us yet. What, how do I know? Because we're still breathing and we're still ticking, aren't we? Let's wait for the rest of the story to unfold because it has been engineered by God to display his sovereign mercy and glory. For from him, is mercy. And through him, excuse me, from him is mystery. And through him is mercy. And to him is doxology. Praise. To him be glory forever and ever.